0: Thank you so much. As we turn to God's word today, uh, well, we have turned to God's word today. As we continue to hear God's word today, uh, let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. You have not left us in ignorance and darkness, but you've given us the light of your word. We pray now that the power of the Holy Spirit will enlighten our hearts, that we may hear your word and receive it and trust it. obey it we ask this not because we are worthy but in the name of our Savior the Lord Jesus Christ amen amen well once again uh, let me thank David and the team here for inviting me to be here and have the privilege of being with you uh, even in this strange way uh, today Uh, I didn't by accident mention something of Christine's family history. She gave me permission to do so, you'll be glad to know. In fact, there's even been a novel written about her grandmother and uh, who she was and so forth, so it's not a secret. But you see, it's a reminder to us, isn't it, that our families truly matter. If I were to say to you, you know, tell me about your mum and dad, Uh, it's a way of finding out who you are. Uh, and as you, many of us are interested in our family lines, and, and we, we use uh, ancestry.com or something like this to find out who we, we really are, where we come from, which, which, which part of the world we came from originally, or whether we were always here. We are quite interested in us as families and where we came from. Now, one thing I know about you. Uh, I know for sure about you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you and I are brothers and sisters because one of our ancestors is definitely Abraham. We are the children of Abraham. Now, perhaps genetically the children of Abraham, there are people, but certainly spiritually the children of Abraham, and that's how we are described. We all belong to Abraham. Abraham is one of the most significant people in all of history. It's interesting that uh, Judaism, of course, uh, honours Abraham, Islam honours Abraham, and, of course, uh, we Christians honour Abraham because of the significant role he plays in the Bible. And you will be hearing more about that, thank God, in the next few weeks. Uh, It's a really good thing to be doing, to be looking at Genesis 12 and what follows. But my task this morning is to give us the prehistory here you are now what happened before you arrived so to speak so I've been asked to do the prehistory of the family the prehistory of our family the family of Abraham and that's found in Genesis chapter 1 uh, ch- Genesis chapters 1 to 11 now I was uh, a bit put out this morning and the talk given to the children and that everything was said which I was going to say but never mind I'll do my best simply to repeat it wasn't it good it was terrific so today the prehistory of our family those chapters in the bible Genesis 1 to 11 now three things about it before about these chapters before we launch into looking at them in essence Three things about them. First of all, these chapters are what I call universal. They're written in such a way that every human being on the face of the earth can quickly, readily understand them. They're written with that sort of language. They're written in a way that that, uh, everyone who is on this earth, can look up and they can see the heavens and they can see the earth and they see the stars and the sun. No matter whether you uh, see these things through the, the eyes of modern science or whether you see them through uh, someone living uh, 1,500 years ago, no matter what part of the world you're in, this book, this chap- these chapters have been written in your language so you can understand it. Very, very wise of God isn't it to do it exactly that way so it's universal universal secondly it is selective and sometimes we don't notice that sometimes the story is so brilliant and so riveting we think it's telling us the whole story but it isn't there's lots here that the lord doesn't tell us uh, we don't need to know it and he doesn't tell us where did where did the serpent come from where did evil the evil of the serpent come from and of course classically where did Cain's wife come from what does that mean there's whole segments of the story which we are not let in on you can say well why because we didn't need to know it god is telling us something really significant he wants us to focus on what really matters what really matters so it's universal and it's selective and thirdly it's challenging what do I mean? Well, in the, uh, when it was first written, it was particularly challenging to the sort of uh, the view of the world which says there are many gods. Many gods in this world. And uh, what we call polytheism. Many spirits. Uh, you, you you go into this territory and it belongs to that God. You go to that territory, it belongs to this God. Uh, this person has special relationship with that spirit and if you're not careful, they'll make you sick through their prayers and curses. It was a world of fear and darkness. And what Genesis 1 did and Genesis 1 to 11 did was, was challenge that whole idea and say no, 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 no. There is, wherever you go, wherever you go in this whole wide world, there is but one God, in fact, in the universe. And then there's this other view, which is more popular recently, of atheism, where there is no God. And Genesis challenges that as well and says, No, in the beginning, God. That is the way the universe is. Better believe it, better live with it. So it's universal, it's selective, and it's challenging. Now, as we turn to our family history in, this, in these chapters, who do you see? And what do you see? I always laugh. The earliest uh, person in my family to come to the colony, as it then was, of New South Wales was a crook. Uh, no, I don't mean he was a convict. I mean his name was Crook, which seemed odd, really, if you think of a person coming to a convict colony whose name was Crook. Anyhow, he seemed to get by all right. He was a missionary, if truth be known. So what is it that you see? When you look at your family here, what are you looking at? Remember, this, we're looking at your family. We're looking at the history, the prehistory of our family as the children of Abraham. Ready? First of all, you see the mighty creator. Then, after that, you see the mighty failure, and you see the mighty saviour. Ready? Okay, let's go. The mighty creator. The first words of the Bible are absolutely stupendous. If you don't believe in any God at all, or maybe you believe in magic and many gods, do you hear these mighty words? In the beginning, God. And then as the sentence goes on, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is only one God. And in that opening, it refers to his spirit as well, brooding over the waters. Now, they didn't know at that point what we now know as we read the New Testament. But then as uh, the, uh, the the uh, book goes on, talking about the way in which God has made the world, he didn't make it by getting pre-existent. <laughs> if you make something, you always make something by pulling things down out of the cupboard and making it. Or going to the workshop and making it out of pre existent material. You can't do it any other way, but God does. He made the world, ready? He made the world. Uh, he made the world out of nothing. And he didn't you and I make things with hammer and nails and all this sort of thing by hard work. He made the world by simply speaking, and the world came to be. Such is his mighty power. So we see here his word. And his word, the fact that he spoke. And by the way, it's no accident that Jesus is called the word of God. Is it right here in Genesis? We have the God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit. His word is full of power. By his word, all things were created. The most powerful people don't do the job themselves. They say, do this, do that. And God just says, and things come to be. He is the king, the ruler, the sovereign over all things. That's what we're being told right here. And his word has, is full of purpose. He doesn't just speak. He doesn't wonder what he's going to do next and go for a holiday or something like that. He is purposive. And you get that sense with the unfolding of the six days of creation And then especially as it climaxes in the seventh day when it says God rested on the seventh day. Now it didn't literally go to the the beach or something like this. On the seventh day, the seventh day is a way of telling us that there is a rest. That God has an aim, a purpose, a goal. He's moving towards something. This creation is purposive. His word is purposive. And then his word is also... uh, Now I'm going to say something here. I'm reading further into the story. I'm going to say his word is full of promise. His word is full of promise. Promises are great things, aren't they? (laughs) Depending on who makes the promise. That's the key. You can promise the world and not deliver. When God promises, his word, his promise can be absolutely trusted. You can... You can have faith in the promises of God. And his word is very promissory. (laughs) I just made that up. His word is very promissory. Um, One of the worst ways you can punish someone is to put them into solitary confinement and not speak to them. To cut them off. That's torture when when you refuse to speak to someone. You know, sometimes... Family relations, we won't speak to each other. That's punishment. The God we're talking about here is a speaking God, and he speaks to us. He reveals himself to us. He discloses himself, and he relates to us. His word is full of power, purpose, and promise. And then, as we read the story in Genesis chapter 1, we come across his image. His image, male and female, he created them. In his image, he created them. In other words, the idea of image here is, again, threefold. First of all, the preciousness of male and female. We are set off from the animals, yes. We are are animal, but we are distinct from the animals. Genesis 9 verse 6 tells us that even after the flood, even when people are sinning, yet nonetheless, we are instilled in the image of God and therefore our lives are to be respected and guarded whoever we are that's so important isn't it whoever we are so we are precious we are human beings we are lordly that's the best way I can think of it uh, that is to say uh, we we bear the image of God we too are sovereigns but under him accountable to him of course uh, we we work God's kingship for him or with him Uh, We are enthroned by the word of God. We name the animals as Adam named the animals. We are under God, and yet we are doing the work of God as his image bearers. And then we are relational. Just as God is relational, so we too are relational. And uh, it's no accident that God says, uh, it is not good for man to be alone, and he creates woman. And we see the creation of Male and female, Adam and Eve. We see the marriage of Adam and Eve. And all the time here, we're thinking of what the New Testament tells us, that that marriage of Adam and Eve is really a way of God saying to us, and one day, one day, my son, my true image, is going to be married to his bride, the church. And they will be one flesh. This passage is just so full of the future of our future. It's wonderful. And what we're seeing here is the mighty creator. And we see the product of his work in the world, a world that he declares to be good, a world that is full. It's it's flourishing with all sorts of life in it. And the more we go on, the more we discover this life in God's world. And it's an astonishing world, astonishing, brilliant, extraordinary world. Uh, it says in Job, the sons of God sang uh, together at the glory of the world that God had created. A mighty, a mighty God, mighty creator. Contrast, a mighty failure, mighty failure. Now we speak about the fall of Adam and Eve. Genesis chapter 3 recounts the fall of Adam and Eve and so we should. What does it mean? Well, it means that they broke the word of God. God didn't just, when he said, declared they were image-bearers and sovereign in this world, he placed them under his word. They were accountable to him. You may do this, but don't do that. There was a boundary to their freedom because true freedom is always found within those boundaries. But we didn't believe it. We human beings, we always know best, don't we? And so... Uh, We want to be number one. And the the serpent comes and he twists the word of God. And he tells Eve and then Adam that really God wants to keep them hemmed in because he's not interested in their best interests. And then he tells them, and you will have the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, that phrase, which is a bit opaque, but that phrase means you are going to be the ones to know what's right and wrong. You are going to determine what's right and wrong. You will make up your own rules. And Boy, don't we live in a world which is busy making up the rules. That's exactly what happened with Adam and Eve. and You may call that the original fall away from God. And so they're expelled from the Garden of Eden, expelled from the Garden of Eden, and their first son commits murder. Cain murders, not just murder, murders his brother. Fratricide is the beginning. And then in that chapter, uh, chapter 4 of Genesis, you have the the story of Cain's descendants. And it's a fairly bleak story. Yes, there are good things about it, actually. There are ways in which Cain's descendants uh, begin to sort of use the world and to do the things that you'd think Adam and Eve might have done had they remained the way they should have been. But no, it's not a good picture. It's not a good picture. So there was that original fall. And then we have that profound fall that we heard about in our talk just a little while ago, where every intention of the thoughts of the hearts of the human being was evil continuously. Genesis 6, verse 5. So you have this original fall, but then as time goes on, there's another fall in which everything is wrong. Not just Adam and Eve, but the whole thing has now collapsed all the way through, as you might see a stain going down through... Some water until the whole thing becomes dark and every thought of the heart is wrong continuously. And so comes the great flood as judgment falls upon the world and there is devastation everywhere. Thank you, thank you, human beings. But Even though Noah is righteous and Noah is saved and his family, yet nonetheless, when the three sons of Noah uh, come forth and so forth, one of them sins almost at once. (laughs) Noah sins. He was drunk. One of them sins. And so the descendants of Noah can continue to have this sinful disposition, ultimately finishing with this Tower of Babel story we're using human technology of which they are so proud. Look what we can do. We can build a tower that'll reach God. And so they start to build this tower going up and up and up, thinking that they might get to God somehow. And there's a lovely sort of joke in the Bible where it says, oh, God says, I must go down and look. And it's so small, so that God comes down, so it says in that, in that language, to, to, to look at the tower. That we have made. We do it all the time. We have. We are so brilliant with technology. Think of the internet; it is absolutely brilliant. Human beings are because we're image bearers of God. And think of what we put onto the internet—the foul and horrible things that it reveals about us. Tower of Babel is again and again and again arising from pride. Now, just as the creation story is good news, just as it's good news, we discover there is only one God and one will. We don't have to negotiate with a hundred gods. There is one God. There's no no God. We're hopeless. But there is one God uh, who is in charge of all things. What wonderful good news that is. So this too, this mighty failure contains good news. It explains why we behave the way we do. It explains that we are the glory of the universe as image-bearers, but we are the scum of the universe, the glory and the scum of the universe, as one great French thinker once said. It gives us, furthermore, assurance, assurance that there is justice in this world. Yes, we want that. I mean, we hear the story of judgment, and we're frightened, and understandably so, but we do want justice, don't we? We do hope that in the end there will be justice. And there is. God is a God of righteousness and justice. And this is not possible, unless that is true, then this life has no meaning, no purpose. Justice is that which gives us meaning and purpose. We understand then that our lives will be assessed, that your life really matters. That God is interested in you and what you do and what you think and what you say. That God will deliver justice is a way of saying how significant you are as an image bearer of God himself. That you are frightened of justice is understandable. But you have to understand that a world without justice is a world without hope, a world of doom. A world of horror if there is no justice in the universe. So we have the mighty creator. Good news. The mighty, mighty failure. Good news. And the mighty Savior. Great news. <laughs> I always love that moment in there, uh, don't you, in, Gen- in Genesis chapter three, where Adam and Eve, it's such a brilliant chapter. What chapter of the Bible is not brilliant? But it's such a brilliant chapter, isn't it, where the the excuses come out. The woman who you gave me, she tempted me and I did eat. I mean, who has not heard that sort of excuse in every home in the Commonwealth of Australia? But there's a little moment there where they they make clothes for themselves. They realise then their hearts have gone wrong and they cannot live any longer in that innocence and so they make inadequate clothes for themselves and then towards the end of the chapter instead of there being instead of there being right death that's it god has mercy and he makes clothes for them isn't that wonderful it's just a little reminder of the mercy of god yes he exiles them from the garden they no longer walk with him in the garden. Their first son kills their second son. But there is evidence, even in that first chapter, when the, the earth is going to be very difficult from now on, childbirth all these things, yet nonetheless, God makes clothes for them. It is a reminder that there is still a future. He clothes the fools. With judgment comes mercy. As uh, Genesis 3.15, you will uh, you, the head of the serpent will be bruised by the sentence of the woman. Secondly, the mighty Saviour creates a family. And this is what I'm really, I love families, and this is what I hope you do too. This is what I'm really interested in. Yes, he creates the family, and Cain and Abel, thank you very much, and they go on. It isn't as if the... Kills Cain for killing Abel. No, Cain goes on and uh, has family, and the family declines and declines and declines. Uh, but then in the next chapter, in the next chapter, or really at the end of chapter four, we hear that Adam and Eve again have another son. This son is called, are you ready? Seth. You will find his name in the genealogy of Jesus. Seth. Adam that will give you a clue because the next chapter chapter 5 is the story of of Seth and his family where they began to call on the name of the Lord here is a godly family here is a godly family It, it may be numerically small it probably is but it is the godly family Enoch who walked with God and was no more we're told the family of God And yet it appears, and this is not altogether There's a disagreement about this, but at the beginning of chapter 6, it appears that the sons of God, and I think that means that godly family, others disagree, mingled with the sons of men. In other words, the two families, the the, the Cain family and the Seth family, intermarry. And I think that's somehow at the heart of of this second collapse, this second failure. I may be wrong there. But uh, from that family, the family of Seth, comes Noah, the saviour, who under God's instructions builds the ark and saves his family and the animals because he is the image bearer of God and he saves the animals and preserves the world through Noah. And Noah, of course, is given a covenant. What's a covenant? It's a funny word. We don't use it much. At the heart, whatever it is, at the heart of the covenant, there is promise. And God promises never to destroy the world again in that way, remember? And he gives them a sign because covenants often have signs. Uh, They can have written form as well. They are often associated with a meal so you can remember. But they too have a sign and the sign of the covenant in this case is the rainbow. What a shame it's in our world that rainbow has been taken over by a cause which is not Christ's cause. But the real meaning of the rainbow is the great promise of God and the covenant of God with between Noah and the family of Noah. Now, Noah has three sons again. And once again, it is one of those sons through whom the line, the godly line comes. Uh, and that son uh, is also in the, uh, in the genealogy of Jesus. His name is Shem. And so we have, uh, we have uh, Adam, and we have Seth, and we have Shem. We have Noah, and we have Shem. And then, as we heard in the, in the Bible reading, Shem is one of the ancestors of... I'll come back to that in a moment. Okay, so uh, we have the, uh, the, last, the last story of a fall in this passage, uh, the story of Babel. And the way in which they tried to build the tower, going up to the heavens, and then how God destroyed it, and the and the scattering, and the and the inability to speak to each other, the confusion of words. You see, words are so important. As I said, if you don't speak, you're torturing someone. If you, speech is just essential to our relationships. And here God comes and scatters the nations and creates the different languages so that speech is now difficult and relations are even more difficult because that's what happens when you try to take God's place in this world, which is just at the heart, the secular heart of the society in which we are living. We'll make the rules. There is no God. God's uh, God's no longer here. We will be in charge. We are continually building the Tower of Babel with our mighty strength and our great intellect. That's what we're doing. And it's the fall all over again. And yet, we have a mighty Saviour. For all this is good news. He clothes the fools, yes. He uh, creates the family. His own family in the middle of the history there. There's the family of God. There's the family of God. And he preserves the world. Noah and the flood. And even the scattering of the nations after Babel. Even that. There is still the family. The family this time uh, of Shem. And all this is good news. God's justice. uh, When you think about the justice of God. Justice is a pretty... Strong word, isn't it? But at the heart of justice, according to the Bible, is not just, in a sense, justice, the judge sitting there making the judgment, but rather God, the just, God, the righteous, who goes and fixes things. It's a dynamic word. The righteousness of God is the righteousness of someone who comes into your house and cleans up the mess. We can't wait for our cleaners to come back. I don't know about you guys, but we can't wait. We need righteousness. We need someone who will not just sort of put your son in jail, but who will do something for your son. We need someone who will come and say, you're guilty, go to hell. You're guilty, go to hell. We need someone who will say, you are guilty, and I will bear the cost, and you may turn to me and hear my word. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Interesting choice of word, isn't it, when you think about Genesis? I will give you rest, says Jesus. So all this is good news, for we are seeing the active power of God at work putting everything to rights. And so here we have this magnificent chat first eleven chapters. Absolutely magnificent. But it's like an overture to, to a great to, to, to a great uh, opera or something like this. You hear this tune and this little variation and that there. It's all setting the scene. And you're, you're waiting, you're anticipating. You're, you, you're, you begin. Later on, when you go back and hear the overture again, you'll understand it even better. Uh, and the overture is playing, the overture is playing. And then, and then, and then, the curtain uh, parts. And there on the stage is poor little old... Well, not so old. Abraham. Abraham comes onto the stage. He's not an innocent. You'll find that as you go on. He's one of us. He struts onto the stage of history, onto a stage prepared for him. And he hears... Some of the greatest promises from God ever made. Some of the greatest promises, you'll hear about this, but promises which affect every human being who's ever lived. And Abraham bears all this on his shoulders, just one of us. He bears all this. He hears all this. And all he does is believe it. He trusts the promises of God. And out of that trust in the promises of God has come the child of Abraham by descent, Jesus Christ, and the child and children of Abraham by adoption. You, I hope. For the faith he had in the promises of God is the faith that you and I need to have in the word of Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. Put my yoke upon you, said Jesus. Learn from me, says Jesus, and you will have peace for your souls. Do you believe in the promises of God? Do you trust him? That's the great question. Let's pray our father in heaven we thank you for your word we pray that by the power of your word our lives will be shaped and we will be made the men and women that we ought to be and particularly dear god we pray that you would help us to trust your word so that your spirit will work his great work in our lives and we pray these things for jesus sake amen